the Tactile World. Um, this is a podcast where we're talking with people about their experiences with care work. Um, and this idea of care is like very broadly defined. It's not necessarily just um, healthcare, education, or social work. We're, we're really thinking about it in a bigger picture. Um, what it means to provide care and like what um, what that experience is like. So um, we, we have here today like a really great guest um, who is Chris Springer. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Chris Springer. Thanks all for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what is your field of work? I'm a freelance artist, which is a wide scope uh different ways of uh fabricating and actualizing uh visual art so you do a lot of stuff you you do a lot of stuff with like vintage clothes you do um interior decorating work like design work um sculpting do interior finishes as well like painting and restoration of furniture uh, I do a lot of also uh, well, hair makeup um, I do a lot of fabrication so that's building of materials like a giant wedding cake or a six-foot penis or Kind of whatever people throw at me. It's more of a problem-solving thing and then turning it into a physical reality. Yeah, so, like, how did you how did you find yourself in this, like, line of work? Like, how did you come to it? Well, when I, when I did actually go to a couple semesters of college, I was very interested in interior design, and so that's what I was taking. But even as a young kid, my mom was an artist, and so I was very artistic. I was always taking art classes in high school, and then got into the interior design and realized, oh no, I want to be a decorator, not a designer. Uh, I don't want to know about fire codes. (laughs) I want to make things look pretty. So anything I can do to make a more aesthetically beautiful world is... I just never said no to a challenge, and I try to make it into a reality. What were you studying when you were in college? Uh, I was in uh, interior design was my main focus. I was in drama. Um, I was also in a program called Becoming a Master Student, which was the first government study on dyslexia. And so that was really working around. Uh, like, they were trying to understand the learning disability, and... But not in a way of, oh, you're disabled, in a way of, how do we work around this? And so that was for a couple of semesters, and it rebooted how I learned. Um, And what it eventually taught me is, I am not a student for college. Yeah, like, so at that point, you just decided that you were going to go a different route? Well, it took a little longer than that. I still took another two semesters after that, but because of my A, learning disability, I never developed great study habits. I couldn't keep up or I was too far ahead um, because I found I'm um, a visual learner. I, I, I don't learn from reading something. I can watch a YouTube video and learn it, but that's somebody actually doing something. But I know for myself, until I'm actually touching it and understanding it, with the tactile nature of learning, that that's how I learn best. And school isn't really a good atmosphere for that. School is more theory instead of application. So what did you do early in your career? Oh, I didn't really do anything. I mean... (laughs) I was waiting tables, I was a barista, and then I started nannying for a long time, um, for several years, uh, before I moved up to Seattle, and then I was a ditch digger for a year, (laughs) and got laid off, and um, was giving a friend a makeover, saying, I don't know, where should I go, I can go back to school, what should I do, I have no idea, maybe computers. And she just looked at me and she's like, um, 
why not this of what you're doing to me right now? And I'm like, oh, never thought of it. And was enrolled in Beauty Academy the next month. And the day my employment ran out for ditch digging, I started my hairdressing career. So you you were doing hairdressing for a while. Yeah, um, uh, solidly for about 20 years. Um, and then uh, part-time for another few years. And now it's you know maybe a couple a week. Can you talk about like what that relationship is like between the hairdresser and the client like you know you're you're touching someone's head you're touching their hair you like it's a very intimate kind of um it's relationship very yeah like people don't get touched yeah i mean most people don't get touched like that most mm-hmm. of the time right unless they're getting like a, a full back massage or something mm-hmm. right but like what is it like your relationship as a hairdresser and like then the client or hairstylist like um you talk to them like there's a emotional well, relationship what is that like yeah i mean initially what you do like i work the the place i worked last in my career i had never really i worked in a salon in the beginning of my career but it was very small and then i had my own place for many years um so it was really my show that was a place that you ran like you, yeah you... i owned a salon in seattle for several years and then um I moved away from Seattle and uh, built a small home salon in my place in Chicago. Um, And then I mostly flew back to Seattle for like three years, every six weeks to maintain my clientele there. But I would rent out of this nail shop that could never hold a hairdresser. And they'd rent it to me for super cheap and they had three hair chairs. So I'd come into town and I'd book it out for four days. I'd just be there 16 hours a day, back-to-back clients all day, you know, but it was, no one else was there. It was our intimate gathering. And it turned into a really cool thing. Um, It became more of a real salon, like in the original sense of the word. The original, like, 18th century sense of the salon. Yeah. I would book clients because it was, you know, an intimate atmosphere, and sometimes they'd have to wait long hours because I was running behind. But I'd try to book people I thought would get along, and we would all kind of just have a party all day. I mean, they'd have a party. I'd be working my ass off, but, (laughs) you know, someone would shampoo somebody's hair if I couldn't get to it so I could get to the next person, and a lot of them became lifelong friends. Some of them even became best friends through it, you know, and met their spouses through those people later on, so it was pretty magical. So this was in Chicago and Seattle? Yeah, the the salon where it started at was in Seattle, um, and then during 2001 there was an earthquake, so my building got red tagged, and I had the opportunity to move finally if I wanted to. What does and, that What does it mean, red tagged? Um, the building got set for demolition. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so I moved it over. I found the spot that I started renting out for when I came to and from Chicago. And then, you know, when I would come back from Chicago, it was a chance to see everybody I loved, but also get paid while I did it. And yeah. it was kind of this wonderful little, you know, uh, setup I had going. And um, still, many of those people are my lifelong friends, even though I haven't touched their heads in decades, you know. Right. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with nannying, um, what that was like? Sure. Um, let's see. When I was 19, I just turned 19, and I had been living in San Diego, going to City College there, and things were just going bad, and my parents were like, come home, and my home life was never very great, but they had this mother-in-law unit in the back of their place. And so my mom was running a daycare at that point, which terrified me <laughs> <laughs> because my mom was, you know, she was a raging alcoholic and untreated bipolar, bipolar one with borderline. Those are all old terms, but you know, back, this is what, 91, uh, you know, and she was running this daycare, and 
so I, I had a job. I was trying to save money to move to, um, I mean, I was just trying to save money to like decide what I was going to do with my life. And, um, one day I came home and my mom was passed out. There was no one. And we're talking two and three year old, six month old kids. Uh, there was no one attending them. Jesus. And, um, so I pulled it all together, got them all, you know, properly taken care of. The parents came and picked them up and I just, that night, called each and every one of them, terrified because, you know, I was defying my parents and my place to live, but told them what was going on. Uh, How old were you at the time? 19. 19, okay. And uh, so I was thrown out of the house that night, Uh, but one of the parents, I went and stayed at a friend's house, and one of the parents called me and said, listen, um... I, I know you love my daughter and you wouldn't have made that phone call without her and I see how you are with her. This was this little girl named Robin who was six months old when she first came to the daycare. So she was about nine months at that point. And she was just also my favorite. I just loved her. And um, she said, will you come nanny for me? I, I can't pay you a lot, but I can give you room and board. And, oh, you know, I see. Cash okay. stipend yeah. and give you a car and, you know, you it could work for a while and so you know it was a block from my parents house in this little town <laughs> but i said okay where was and that in california in carmel by the sea okay. yeah um and so i had this beautiful room and really lovely family well lovely woman the dad you know was suffering from depression and was nice enough but you know not very engaging but i had robin who was just this innocent little sponge who was just the sweetest little thing. And my whole job was just making sure she was okay and teaching her, you know, and it it was really a unique relationship we had. How did you feel about that? Like, was it a very rewarding relationship? At that moment in my life, I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do. That was more important to me. And of course, I was thinking of my future and knowing, you know, this isn't permanent, but it was kind of like adrift and like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, at 19, I didn't have a whole lot of prospects. I was cleaning people's houses. I was doing the nannying. And then I'd nanny, you know, in the weekends and evenings for other families or... A lot of times we'd go out of town with the family and they'd, another family would come and I'd get paid to like take care of the kids as they went skiing or, you know, did stuff like that. And I, I became very close. And actually, Kristen, uh, Robin's mom, she had been through recovery. <coughs> she was like this high-powered executive. Uh, you know, she wore the pants in the family. She was a breadwinner. And um, she'd been through recovery and all kinds of things. You know, I think she was about 38. She went through recovery from alcohol yeah, or drug, yeah. uh, alcohol addiction. Yeah. And so she was really far along in her path. And so I guess the first incident was I was backing out of the driveway and I sideswiped a wood pile. Oh, and I had a heart attack. Like, I was just like, so immediately, like, I packed my bags and, you know, had them waiting on my bed and waited for her to get home. When she came in, I explained what happened, and I was in tears and said, you know, um, my friend Nadine said I can come stay with her for a couple of days. I'm Aww. so sorry. And she just looked at me and she's like, it's just a car. What are you talking about? Wow. I've never had an adult react what a, to me. What like a big that. what a big turning point at that like to have an adult say something reasonable. Reasonable, <laughs> very calm, very just matter of fact. It's just a car. Yeah, it's just a car. You guys are okay. And then the next ex- time I dislocated her daughter's arm. You never expected to hear that from your parents. That's 
would have never came out of my parents' mouth. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because they didn't see things in that way. Like, no, everything was a crisis and a freak out, and it was yeah. always on 11. There was no mellow... Everything's and, always on 11. Yeah. There was no reasonable conversations. There was no solutions. There was no anything but tirades and, you know, breaking things and screaming. But this was your window into, like, a normal, normal, adult. normal middle class life that, like, somebody's like, oh, yeah, it's just a car. It's yeah. like a big deal. Like, yeah. that's not something you've ever experienced before. Never. Yeah. I didn't know how to react to what she yeah. was saying. Yeah, I know. I, 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 and I came from a similar background, and I kind of understand that. Like, wait, what? You're just like, it's just a car? Mm-hmm. Like, that that would not compute. Yeah. Yeah. No. I just was, like, stunned. And then a few months later, I was playing with her daughter, and she let her daughter jump on the bed, and we'd play this game. And Robin would go, uppy! And I'd pick her up put her on the bed and just jump off and ha ha land and I was picking her up and I didn't realize it but I dislocated her shoulder Fuck. and she was only like 18 months well, so she couldn't say anything no she couldn't explain like what yeah but she yeah. you know was really cranky throughout the day and like I couldn't understand it and I told her mom, you know, like, you're jumping on the bed. I don't know. She's been being weird ever since. She didn't hit her head or anything. And her mom took her to urgent care, and it's called Nanny's Elbow. <laughs> and it's from, you know, yanking your kid by the arm or whatever. But you know, I wasn't yanking her to get off with something. We were, you know, I was pulling her up by the arms, not thinking twice. And sure enough, and it became... It's called Nanny's Elbow? Yeah, and it's a lifelong thing. Her shoulder oh. pops and <laughs> sucking forever. Oh, shit. <laughs> and her mom was just like, what? Kids will be kids. Where I was already packing my bags again. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like... What was your relationship with your parents like? I mean, did you feel like you had to take care of them? Yeah. I mean, we never had a parental relationship. It was... It was my sister and I's job to keep... Be sweet and get everything done to make sure there was as little drama as possible. Yeah. And then when my sister left, I was... You have an older sister? Yeah. She was, like, my caretaker, you know. She's the one that rescued me. But, you know, when she was 16, my family was moving away, and she said, no, I'm staying. I'm going to finish high school. My friend's mom will let me stay there. And it was, you know, I was devastated. And then all of a sudden, I was in charge. And they don't say, oh, you're in charge, but if you don't step up and do things, nothing gets done and it just gets worse. How how old were you at that time? About 12. No, I was 11. I was almost my 12th. 11, 12, you felt like you were put in charge of taking care of the family? I couldn't articulate it back then. But that's the role. I stepped into her role. I didn't do as good of a job as she did. She was much more pragmatic than I was, even from a small kid. Um, What was it like to be 11 years old and be in charge of your family? Like I said, I didn't realize how it was going on at that time. But, like, I remember my mom did another suicide attempt and nobody would do anything. And so I'm the one that broke down the bathroom door. I'm the one that took all the razor blades and pills out. I'm the one that she went and threw all my dad's clothes on the lawn and I went and picked them up. I was the one that talked to the police at first. You know, just trying to... What's it like for a a young person to be in that kind of position to have such responsibility? I mean, you can only look back. And back then it was autopilot, so I didn't know any difference. Yeah. I wasn't like, oh, poor me, I have to do this. I didn't realize it was something not everybody did. 
Um, and I didn't have any other perspective to look from. I was well, it's the only like, thing you know. Like yeah. this is just this is the way things are. Like, I mean, you have no other frame of reference, right? No. Yeah. Like, we're just gonna do this. Like, we're gonna do this thing. No, this is just what you suicide. do. Like, yeah. this is how you fix this. This is how you do it. And. Um, I didn't do nearly as good of a job as my sister did, but I realize now what my role was, was emotional caretaker, and um, navigating that was more difficult than the reality of what was going on, because you don't have the advice or the coping skills or the life experience to give your father advice yeah. at 12 and 13 and you know um, at some point I just focused on getting out of there instead of focusing on being there and that's when I started to rebel against it and not do it and then my life became truly hell. <laughs> um, to the point, I guess I left home. I mean, I ran away when I was 13, but got caught and had to go back. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but then I also realized they would kind of leave me alone if my friends were preppy, I could do whatever I wanted. And I wasn't questioned. Like, I was pretty much grounded most of my teenage years until I realized that. And then I could have some life and independence. So you need to have some preppy friends to have... Oh, but they life. have the better drugs is what I discovered. So. Well, yeah, the preppy friends are the ones who have cocaine. Well, and they also yeah. are hiding more. They're not wearing their badge on their yeah. sleeve. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the rich kids are the ones who have like the good drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I got out of there as soon as I could. It was just a mess for a long time. And then... Um, Went and nannied on the East Coast for a summer and was with a really great family and got offered another nanny job because I was really good at it, but um, caring for someone else's children is a very tight rope to walk. What do you mean? Well, they bond with you and you bond with them and you're spending all the hours with them that their parents can't and their parents only see them right when they wake up and right when they're cranky and ready for bed. Yeah. They don't get the best times with them. Yeah. You know, they don't get to like, hey, let's go see a movie. Let's go fuck around and lay by the pool all day, you know, when you're a parent, especially the parent, the family that I was with, it was a single dad and four kids, and he worked, you know, he's an, an investment banker, he was in New York, like, 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, yeah, yeah. and even with that, Friday nights was family night, and they, you know, spent the evening, that their whole basement was converted to a music room, and they all played music and pool, and spent time together so he was doing the best he could it's just you know he had to provide and so he needed someone there and so my main my main person i was with was a 13 year old girl i I was just turned 21 and um it was summertime and her other nanny really didn't like her and she didn't like her because I think she had a 148 IQ when she was tested at 12, but she was also diagnosed with bipolar like that summer. Um, and looking back, I think it was really more, she was so leveled up against her peer group. She was one of the wisest kids I've ever met. So she was super smart. In- insanely smart. And she was like a little adult trapped in a teenager's hormonal nightmare of a body. Yeah. 
and uh, nobody understood her and she couldn't connect with people but she and I really connected and um, so we spent the whole summer together she had gotten a 4.5 average so her dad basically said carte blanche and whatever you guys want to do this summer and so we went to the Star Trek Museum, the Hard Rock Cafe. We took boat rides around New York. We went to Lollapalooza. We went, we just, you know, and at night we'd be watching movies and I'd pay her five bucks an hour. So you were, you were along for all that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had such a good time. Yeah. We had a really, she's a really cool kid. We're actually friends today. Oh, that's nice. That's yeah. really cool. She's got her own son and. You know, um, is a massage therapist, and um, yeah, she's very sweet. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your ex's, um, like, daughter? Yeah. Um, that That's a big part of your story, I think, like, that you were, like, very much a part of this child's life, and... Yeah. Well, I'll start at the beginning with that. This guy liked me a lot. I thought he was pretty foolish and, like, didn't like his style or whatever, but he was pretty sweet. And, you know, my mom had just passed away, like, within that week, and his best friend had just committed suicide, so we commiserated and ended up, you know, so I'm kind of lonely. I want him to stay over. And that turned into, like, a week or two or whatever, and at the point, I was kind of fighting with my roommate, wanted to get out, and I was... He didn't really have a place. I'm like, so let's get a two-bedroom apartment, you know. And we moved in together pretty quick, but my whole plan was I'm going to throw him out the second, <laughs> you know, yeah. I can. Yeah. The second we're both stable, get him out. And he didn't have a job or a driver's license or a bank account or nothing, Oh, man. my God. And um, I knew he had a daughter, but she lived in Ohio or, no, Pennsylvania, and then I found out later he had two other kids that lived right down the street. Those were red flags for me, but I was like, oh, you know, I'm never going to meet them, whatever. And about a month after we moved into the apartment, we got a knock on the door. And there is his eight-year-old daughter and her mom, who have never met either of them. And she's like, oh, hey, I'm in L.A., thought you might want to see Georgie, and I was just like, at that point, I'm a no kids, had a hysterectomy, yay, I'm free, I'm living my best adult life, don't have to deal with this, and I was like, holy shit, and I met her mom, and her, her mom, you know, her dad was always, ah, oh, she's such a bitch, she's crazy, you know, but who doesn't say that about their ex, especially someone who's not, like, well-educated or, you know, in touch with themselves. Yeah. And um, she was a little weird, a little shallow, stuff like that. And Georgie, just you couldn't even have a conversation with her. All she wanted to do was watch Disney movies and eat sushi. And um, I was just like, oh, wow. And her mom wouldn't make a schedule for Georgie to come over. She would just show up. Georgie like have one shoe on, no clothes, and she'll be like, I'll be back in two hours after run errands, and she'd be gone for five days. And so I'd have to go to buy Georgie clothes, and you know, at least a pair of flip-flops or something, and like something to wear, and something to sleep in, and you know, like maybe another stuffed animal, and like, you know, and um, then I was like, okay, I can't kick him to the curb because I can't like watch him ignore this kid or watch this kid just get treated like this. This is pretty wrong. But I didn't really know what to do about it. So I'm like, okay, you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna try to help him be a better dad. Because otherwise she was kind of stuck in the situation I grew up in. You know, where they just scream at each other, and he was just kind of a really not smart, not well thought out human, and she is a little on the crazy side, very self-centric at least. I'm, I was thinking more like, there's a little mental illness running pretty strong in her, you know, 
And um, she shows up one day and she's like, I really need to talk to you, Chris. And I'm like, oh, okay. She brings out her computer and she starts showing me all these like Facebook accounts. And she's like, these are all Johnny Depp's. And all of them. There's 137 of them. And they're designed to stalk me. Johnny Depp is stalking me. What? He's part of the Illuminati. And they know I know. And it's all of them and the vampires living under the Staples Center. And they're out to get me. And I have to hide Georgie here. By all means, hide Georgie here. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, wow. she left. No, actually, I let her stay two nights because she was so unstable and I didn't want her to take Georgie and I had no parental rights. Her dad, she had temporary full custody because she filed while she was in Pennsylvania and he missed the court date. And so he kept procrastinating on filing and the second he got home, I'm going to do a filing fucking thing right now but he was like I don't know how they'll never do it you know like I'm like try I want to hear what you can't do I want to hear what you can do and sure enough she started getting crazier and crazier he was lagging and it comes up that okay the vampires are extra after her and so she has to leave her house or she got evicted or something and she starts staying with some guy we don't even know who it is and Georgie comes to us a couple days later I'm like where's your bike and she's like mom's friend took it and I'm like, tell us about mom's friend I don't know it was just a bunch of people that lived there and then I don't know where my mom went and then she came back and so we had Georgie's has an older sister named Jessica Tell me if this is too convoluted. Um, And Jessica's dad, this guy named Dak, was married to Hannah for like 10 years. His daughter, they have a daughter in common. Dak had just gotten out of a 10-year prison sentence for transporting marijuana across state lines. Uh, But he's a really nice guy, dumb as a fucking box of rocks, but really nice. (laughs) Like, kind of guy that would give you the shirt off his back. So sweet. Probably took the fall for all the drug runners, and he's the one that went to jail. Yeah. Anyway, um, and Hannah's like, I'm leaving. I'm going up to Humboldt, where uh, her mother lives. She hates her mom. And in the meantime, the vampire stuff is increasing, and like, just like psychosis, like you can't even like have a conversation. So she's like, I'm going up there and there's nothing you can do. And so I'm like, do something, Greg. So he called Dak and Dak and her had an okay relationship. And Dak's like, hey, why don't you meet me? I'll take you guys out to breakfast. Stay one more night. I'll get you a hotel. And he meets them with a bag of groceries, gets them a hotel, realizes Georgie again only has one shoe on, stuff like that. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'll take you out to breakfast in the morning and then I'll put you guys on the bus. And he happened to be friends with a um, federal agent, this woman. And he asked if she would join them for breakfast. And Hannah didn't know she was a federal agent. And Hannah started in about the vampires and about, you know, the Johnny Depp thing and um, a couple other celebrities that were stalking her in her mind. And at this point, she's, I'm pretty sure she's homeless, like living on the streets. And, um, <clears throat> and the federal agent had, and she called social services, like, excuse yourself to the restroom. And they're like, oh, we can't be there for like 72 hours, so you have to let her go. She was like, fuck that. And she took her to the sheriff's station, which is a different thing than the police station. And Hannah came down to the sheriff's station and started in with her craziness. And the sheriffs wouldn't release Georgie until a social worker came. So one finally showed up at like 11 o'clock at night. 
and my roommate had just moved out and we had planned on um my friends were coming in town so i just had a bed in there like whatever um so it was kind of perfect timing like i had a room for dorothy and so the social worker came over you know like i had 10 minutes of notice to look at the house and talk to me and see if it was safe for Georgie to go there. She deemed it was. And so that was a temporary thing. And that's when court started. So it started out, we had to go to family preservation once we, Greg had to take parenting classes. Um, he also had to do uh, drug testing um, we had to do family therapy once a month, I mean, once a week, and then Georgie had therapy once a week, and then we had visitation two to three times a week with her mom, but that was, like, at a facility downtown. They wouldn't let her mom see her unless there was a, um, moderator and an armed guard there because she was a flight risk, but half the time the moderator would close the session down within like two minutes if she even did show up usually she didn't show up i had to show up i had to bring georgie no matter what at five o'clock downtown los angeles this many times a week you know and then the court date started and there were about say seven of those over the period of a year this was almost a two-year period but you know about a year was going back and forth to court. We still had to do all those things every week. It, Greg graduated the parenting classes and then also um, the, he got out of the drug things. Um, and he started getting really into it and getting a positive attitude and like changing the way he was parenting and talking. And it was really helping him become a better person. And so he finally got full custody like she had no visitation without an armed guard like that she had to pay for so and Georgie was relieved when I talked to Georgie about this she didn't want to see her mom because she had been in therapy that whole time solidly and she was just like my mom doesn't give me anything my mom is scary to me my mom is you know not mentally well you know I don't want to be around her and in the meantime, Georgie went from, like, a D student to A-plus on the honor roll, like, went into middle school in high honors. She graduated, like, I think third in her class of, like, 800 students. She loved it. She was on a sports team that was, like, 24-7 all through the summer. They competed all over California. They were undefeated. So not only was she keeping her grades up all day after school, three hours a day, exercising, and she had good friends, and she was making great choices for herself. Just, like, turn around. How do you think about your relationship with Kira now? I mean, um, with the people that you live with, like, are part of your life, like, um... You, you you still care about people you still take care of folks um so like how is that how does that work now um well i'm living with another little child <laughs> who had a really fucked up upbringing and who's trying to make himself a better person and so i've been raising him for about four years yeah um I still, you know, do hair. I still, like, volunteer my time with friends that need it, probably more than I should, you know? Like, I like to be there for people. I'm never going to have kids, you know? And I do really think the whole purpose in life is to give love and compassion. Um, and I think that's expressed through, uh, kindness and stepping up to help people, even if it inconveniences you or even if it's hard, like, I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's, I think living your life in a way of service is more meaningful to me than 
living a life based on just me, just my goals, just my focus, just my things. I'm more, I get bored with myself. I'm more interested in other people and their journey. I already know mine, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it's, you know, some people volunteer at a soup kitchen or, you know, a homeless shelter. They're doing volunteer work like that, and that's great, and I don't do enough of that, honestly. But I do, you know, if I see somebody hungry, I go get them something to eat or get them a cup of coffee or get them into an Uber if they have to be in an Uber, you know. Um, listen to them if they need someone to listen to, even if they're having an episode and try to try to really hear them. And you know, a lot of people just do listen to Really, that's what it boils down to, don't you think? Yeah. Just think, growing up, if you had someone like that, you know, things would be a lot different. Yeah. And some people learn it later in life, and, you know, I I definitely did learn the care and compassion. So I thought, but, you know, looking back, I was always very much like that like I wanted to fix problems and I wanted to help you know I'm never a blind eye or a cold shoulder person I'm like what no. can we do what are our options let's think about this you know yeah. and let's let's exhaust them before you give up you know <laughs> but yeah people need that like someone who seems to care about them who's really listening who's willing to pay attention like People don't get that very often. Not enough. Especially people on the street. Oh, um. definitely. <clears throat> There's another person. My brother died homeless. And we were pretty estranged. I had no way of getting a hold of him. And I hadn't lived in California. But when I moved back to California, about a month later, my sister let me know he was in the hospital and he knew by me. And so I went and visited him, and, like, I knew uh, at that point his liver had died in his body, but he wasn't acknowledging that. And so I just spent time with him, and um, then he went into hospice, and I went and visited him a few times there, and would just listen to his stories and ask questions about his life. And um, he was one of those people, ever since he was a child, like, now what we know, he he had serious mental illness. He was very much like my mother, and he started alcohol abuse at, uh, really hard at 14, he ran away. He was already starting at, like, 11, though, or 12, and was really the black sheep, and nobody understands me, and... But really, he was a very kind human, deep down, very wounded, very kind. And um, he he passed away in 2010, and I was with him. And, um, you know, I couldn't help but think, had he been born 10 years later with the resources, I had to combat yeah you know my emotional situations and my you know my mental state where i i started therapy very young on my own volition because i needed something and i knew it but i didn't have the stigma that the older generation did on seeking yeah. help so yeah. i'm a really big heart for that you know a big heart for mistakes and people's brains and body chemistry is not lining up with the norm and um, you know if you can help even one person have a little bit of love and compassion that's the biggest way you can impact their life yeah it's not Oh, let's give you a haircut and a, you know some clean clothes for a job interview. Well, you have to be able to hold that job. Yeah. 
you know, you have to be able to, oh, we'll give you shelter in this bed with three meals a day, you know. You have to be able to do it, yeah. Yeah, and the mental health situation in this country is criminal. It's getting better. It's getting more talked about, more aware. It's, but yeah, that's true. I think you're right. And now with telehealth, there's easier access, but it's still financially undoable for so many people, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> it's not covered by a lot of insurance. It's not covered. Mm. It's not a necessity. We're actually, I think it's our number one health necessity. Yeah, the situation is so fucked up. Like, even if you have insurance, you can't necessarily get health care. Yeah. And a bunch of people don't have health insurance, so... Well, and they don't have an advocate to steer them through that system. It's a daunting system. What do you call six, seven therapists trying to get an appointment? Everybody's full. Finally, get yeah. one. You feel awkward. You don't connect with them. You know, like yeah. And there's a lot of therapists out there that aren't very good at the jobs. Mm, you that's know? for sure. Yeah. So, I think our duty as humans. Well, my duty as a human is to be part of the village you know and part of that village whether you're a parent or the healer or the chef part of the village is just listening and doing what you can that's within your grasp it's also helping people find resources is a big one i do a lot of work for tenants advocacy and um, I don't know about the rest of the states, but LA has a huge homeless problem and they have mass evictions that start um, February 1st. The uh, COVID restrictions. Yeah, it's going to be really bad. Yeah. Yeah, there's about 80,000 <clears throat> evictions slated uh, that start then. And people being pushed off Medicaid and stuff too, like that's going to happen soon. Um, it's gonna be really bad, just and and people don't people. It's just like the stuff is so confusing and so complicated that like people don't really necessarily understand exactly what's happening. So you're like, oh wait, like my apartment, I'm losing my apartment, I'm losing my Medicaid. Like, mm-hmm. like I, I have no idea what's happening, but like, it's just like a sneak attack. But what's first on the Republicans' agenda is cutting all that. I know. I mean, even cutting what we already have, which is not good enough, but they want to cut it even more. Why are we paying 35% minimum, if you're not rich, uh, of your income for all of this government aid when we're 2% more? Other countries are providing excellent health care and yeah. making sure their people are housed, you know? Yeah. This whole bootstrap bullshit is such a Republican Reagan dogma of the fucking past. Yeah, I, I do think people are like not totally on board with that anymore. Um, I think people I feel the shift. I see it. I feel like there's a shift. I feel like people are like more skeptical about those kind of things. Well, like let's the, face it, the <coughs> dinosaurs are dying out. The ones that bought that shit are dying out, and I really have a lot of hope for the future. The younger generations blow my mind, especially the, what are they, the Gen Zers? Gen Z, yeah. They're cool folks. I've yeah. a lot of great millennials too. I know people bag on them, but... Yeah. You know, it's, um, people are making fun of, this isn't a safe space for me, blah, 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 when I was a kid. You know what? Think about how the, everyone's like, they're never going to be able to have a job or work. And I'm like, they're a much kinder society, though. So that was our conversation with Chris Springer, artist, and uh, multi-talented, um, an advocate among many other things um i want to thank her so much for being on the show i'm sorry that there were some technical difficulties in our recording session so the sound quality is not exactly the best but i do think that 
a lot comes through in Chris's story. I think you can hear it in the timbre of her voice, um, the kind of person she is, and the way she thinks about being in the world. There's an uh, allusion in our discussion I, to an incident. It's probably not the only one, but but it was a time when um, a very um, <clears throat> drunk, uh, maybe drug, you know, adult man uh, was walking up long driveway to the house behind Chris's house. Um, he was very confused. He's a German guy, believe it or not, um, and he was barefoot. He claimed to be looking for a model that he knew back in the 80s. Um, the neighborhood he thought he was in was not this one. Uh, it's actually pretty far away. No idea how he got here or where he thought he was. Um, me? I was there. Um, I saw this person as a threat. I was ready to either ignore them or defend myself. And that's not how Chris um, approached it. She talked to this person very calmly, sat him down, talked through it, she got him a pair of shoes, called him an Uber back to where he said he was staying. Um, and I think that says a lot. What you hear, I think, in our discussion is how um, we can try to be kind and decent in our lives, um, even in very difficult circumstances. And um, I really want to thank Chris for talking with us about that. So thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Um, thank you for your curiosity. I think that's one of the things that makes life beautiful. Uh, we're going to have more stories uh, where people are discussing their rich lived experiences um, on the tactile world next time when we come back. So thank you and uh, have a great day.